Well, good morning and welcome to this uh, Meet the Author event of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Ramona Koval from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and it's my great pleasure today to be in conversation with the marvellous novelist and memoirist Faye Weldon, who I first read in the 1970s as a young uni student, Down Among, uh, Down Among the Women was the book, um, and, and, it was, and it, I was so attracted to her satirical and wise view of the world. And um, since then, she's worked the range from cloning to cuckolding and all things in between and beyond. Uh, Faye Weldon's memoir, Auto de Fay, read very much like one of the novels that have amused her readers for uh, about 30 years. Her new novel is, in a sense, again, down among the women, but this time the women are high achievers, mortgage brokers and judges and journalists, ten women who meet at a spa over Christmas and New Year, ten days of pampering and talking together. It's called The Spa de Cameron, and to begin, um, Faye Weldon's going to read from us. This is the first time that she's read from this book. It's just been published and this is a, a real treat for the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Please welcome her to Edinburgh. Yes, I just saw this book for the first time yesterday and as I said, I haven't read it. Um, <laughs> Writing is a very different business, actually, and it, 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 it's, it comes to you quite new when you, when you actually read it. So we will see. We will see what happens. Um, it starts with an advertisement. Uh, one. Yuletide break, special offer for high achievers. Ten days of peace and tranquility at world-famous Castle Spa. Join us in scenic Cumbria on Christmas Eve. Leave on January 2nd. Special bargain price, £5,000. <laughs> All treatments inclusive. Join Lady Caroline Evercreech and others of like mind for a low-calorie Christmas lunch. <laughs> Women only. Recoup from the past year, face the adventure of the new one, inspired and refreshed, etc. The advertisement was in November's Vogue. Finding myself disastrously homeless and partnerless, I read it with attention. An out-of-date vogue, we were three days before Christmas, is not my usual reading, but I was at the hairdresser. My name is Phoebe Fox. I am a woman of a certain age and blondish. My roots needed doing and I wanted extra streaks. I had to have somewhere to go as a matter of urgency, and wherever I was going, I had to get there with good hair. <laughs> Call up Castle Spa then, said Pauline of the hair salon. Find out if they have a space. Book yourself in. Treat yourself. You work hard enough, God knows. It was, a pleasant, it was pleasant to have this from someone who has been working on their feet five days a week for more than 20 years. I am a writer. At least I can sit down while I work. She can't. She <coughs> must stand and bend, and it is hard on the feet and the back. I have known Pauline for years. She is my guide and my confessor. She is buoyant, strong, hardworking, and noble, and usually right. <laughs> I called Sparse Castle Spa on my mobile while I waited for the color to take. The receptionist took my name and number and said she'd call back in five minutes. Perhaps she's checking you out on Google to see if you're enough of a high achiever, said Pauline. <laughs> but I dare say you are. 
I thought I would be too. Last time I looked, I had 523,000 hits on Google. I write literary novels, which get studied. It's not me, by the way, which get studied. <laughs> oh, this was my theory, as I say, I haven't read it before. Uh, <laughs> I write literary novels, which get studied in United States universities. It is not exactly fame, but it is attention. Pauline's next appointment had failed to turn up. We had the place to ourselves and poured ourselves some wine. Castle Spa's receptionist, who introduced herself as Beverly, Bev to her friends, got back to me in four and a half minutes. Yes, they had one vacancy left for the special offer, a ten-day break. Someone had just dropped out. Yule was a magical time at Castle Spa, only 16 guests, etc., etc. Yes, yes, I said, anything, book me in. The day before, our kitchen ceiling had come down, the bath having been left to overflow. The bath came down too. <laughs> By having been left, I mean my husband Julian had left the tap on and gone away, but I am not one to apportion blame. I have done worse myself. Electricity throughout the house had shorted, there was no heating, I could not use my computer, and worried in case the save facility had failed when the power went off. It was with mixed feelings that I cancelled the Christmas dinner for 22 family and friends. <laughs> and with pleasure that I booked with Pauline for the next morning, knowing that at least with her I would find comfort, warmth and sympathy. Even as Julian and I had tried to find plumbers, builders and electricians and failed, Julian's stepfather called from Wichita, Kansas, to say that his mother had had a nasty fall and broken a hip and wasn't looking good and Julian should go at once. Flights at this peak time were full. There was a place for Julian, though not for me. He had an hour to get to the airport. We were parted. A rare, terrible, but rather exciting event. <laughs> I cried a little. Friends were away or busy, neighbours were indifferent. I spent that night with my head under the duvet, cold without Julian. The house peeped electronically for hours, warning me that the power was off and standby batteries were running low. I was conscious of food rotting in the freezer, milk souring in the fridge. A miserable night might be no more than I deserved. My first reaction when the Wichita phone call came, having been to hope that my mother-in-law had died. A mean and wretched thought, if fleeting, but I could not put up with another night like that. I had thought I would have to push my way through seething crowds to get to the hair salons in Johnswood High Street, but the streets were quiet. The group soul of the consumer crowd around Christmas is unpredictable. A mass of spending humanity will surge through the streets and then suddenly withdraw like the tide before a tsunami. It had withdrawn now and the pebbles were showing unusually bare and dry and my instinct was to turn and run, but where nowadays can one run to other than, for the likes of me, at least, Pauline's hair salon? I gave Pauline my house key so she could go and empty fridge and freezer and take what she wanted. Waste not, want not. I confessed my evil thoughts about my mother-in-law my relief at not having to cook Christmas lunch for 21, 22. I have three grown sons, Julian has three grown girls, girls and most are partnered and some have children, and the sense of mixed panic and joy at the thought of days on my own with nowhere to go and no roof over my head. Pauline absolved me. I read the advertisement while she mixed the bleach. 
and she gave me permission to go to Castle Spa and indulge myself. Shall we do a bit of talk and read a bit more later? Yes? Or get all packed? No, all right, I'll start with the... And, and what happens then is that actually she goes up there and she meets a journalist on the way and um, the whole sort of world is actually collapsing around them. The staff on the spa, the spa staff are going, I've gone on strike because they haven't been paid. <laughs> and, you know, so it's, and, and so they give up and tell themselves stories. Um, and they sit in the jacuzzi and, and, and talk to one another and you get these, these stories and then, and then the people in the spa talk to one another and comment on the stories as they go along. And you it's quite complicated, as I remember. And that you build up the... <laughs> that you build up that you know you so so that in the end you know them all and you know what they're going to say so it's a kind of a, a sort of kind of novel within a novel i did one time call it the jacuzzi narratives which i thought was quite nice but anyway um now i will i'll read you a bit the tale of the trophy wife and so so we have these 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 tales i had intended to keep quiet said the trophy wife about my two years in prison, but I feel confident in this company and, and I can see I need not. Women of high achievement, courage and given to independent thought, as you lot obviously are, will not be easily discommoded. Now, knowing that I was inside for murder, will you be frightened of me? I hope not. I'm not in the least likely to murder you. You will, I'm sure, be sympathetic on my side, indeed, if sides are to be taken. That the Athens court gave me a mere two-year sentence demonstrates their understanding of my predicament. The Greek authorities may take English bird watchers very seriously, convinced that they can scan, as they scan the skies, they can only be skying, spying on Greek Air Force activity. They cannot conceive of such a degree of nerdishness, but they do understand crimes of passion. They understand jealousy. I would have been out six months ago, but for the small part I played in a prison riot. <laughs> I tried to warn the authorities that a riot was building, but they would not listen. Signs of impending riot are the same the world over. Inmates start stocking up on food supplies, more prisoners than usual in the lockups, more demand for transfers, more staff requiring sick leave, an increased level of outside agitation from lawyers and activists. The signs are obvious if you know what to look out for. Just as in any collapsing marriage, the collapse practically announces itself. But the warning signs are overlooked. It's as if unconsciously in our search for event, for drama, we actively prefer to discount warnings. Thanatos, Freud's death wish, is alive and well in all of us. I know more about prisons than most because once there was a real possibility of Lucas being arrested for fraud in the United States and I needed to brief him. Lucas is, was, my husband. I am, was, his trophy wife. Trophy wives are no longer bimbos. They are either women of distinction with careers in their own right, or they are efficient PAs who add bed to their job description and are rewarded with a marriage ceremony. Little did I think that I, not Lucas, was the one who would end up in prison. Lucas had me sent there. One thing I have noticed as I go through life is that goodness is its own reward. No good deed but goes unpunished. For warning the authorities about the pending riot, 
I was at once suspected and then accused of instigating it. They could not conceive that a prisoner might act for the greater good of all, just as I could not conceive that Lupus would treat me as he did after so many years of what I had seen as real affection between us. But men are different from women. Once they have decided to put you away as a wife, that is the end of it. They forget all that has gone between you before, the sacrifices you have made, the pleasures you shared. Their acknowledgement is only to the woman currently filling the bed, currently at the stove, providing wifely benefits. If there is no one to fulfill this role, they quickly find someone who will. Women are not so rational. Let them find themselves a good lawyer at the first sign of trouble. <laughs> Well, in that, that beginning, we're, we're introduced to the language of the modern-day spa, which you have fun with. Can you talk about how things are described in this world of work-life balance? <laughs> well, it's just, it's just a whole language, and you have to read all the advertisements and read the books to get the, to get the gist of it. But it's, it's, it's very new age, and I lived in Glastonbury for a time and became part of one's, one's, one's being, really, this sense that out there... If only you can be natural, if only you can be at one with nature, you will somehow discover who you really are and, and, and work on your chakras and polish them up. And, and, and you know, then you will be a perfect human being whom everybody loves and you love, and it will all be all right so long as you eat lentils or whatever. <laughs> so, it, I mean, in this advertisement, they don't say, do you have absolutely nowhere to go for Christmas and New Year while other people have husbands and families who want to see them? <laughs> yes. yes, and so there is a kind of, you know, there is a kind of sense. I mean, I was once at one of these places uh, between, in, in this strange gap in our lives uh, when, when people without, these, without families, I mean, they use it very sensibly to kind of brush up for the New Year and, and this, this particular spa is capitalised on this and they like high achievers and, and it is the high achievers who tend to go there because as a high achieving woman you tend to have put your fam to find yourself perforce perhaps having put a family behind you or doing it simply because you can't be bothered with family, you like your career. So um, this, this idea of using the physicality of a spa and the attention to your toenails and and massaging, I mean, the, through the body um, to, to achieve some kind of spiritual or, or psychological um, balance. It is, well, it is, it does seem rather, it is rather strange. I can't, I can't do it. I mean, I can, I, I get terribly, terribly bored. I, I can do one massage and that seems wonderful, but the second one is rather boring. The third one just drives you mad with irritation because <laughs> you've done all that and your body is sort of fixed, so why do it again? And I, I don't know, I mean, I mean, all women are very different, but I, I'm one who finds it difficult to sort of look in mirrors too much. <laughs> what about the use of, I mean, the hairdresser, of course, is the place where, where Phoebe goes to, to get counselling yes. and, and, and to, uh, to, to talk about what's really going yes. on. Um, and, and the masseur and all of that. I mean, these are, these are places that people can go um, to, to, to get all the counselling that um, they would perhaps pay a psychologist for. 
Yes, it would seem a better, a better, a better thing to me. But then I'm sort of famously rather against therapy, and and um, and think that your friends or your hairdresser will probably know as much about you as they do, and will uh, will have another narrative of your life. I think when you go to a therapist, you give, you 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 provide a narrative of your life. And my theory is that all therapists are would be writers, are would be novelists but sort of quite can't get it together. And they, so they use real people <laughs> as, 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 as their, you know, and then bring these lives to the, to the conclusion of their choice or their training, you see. And, and sometimes it works. I mean, you know, it does. And sometimes, but quite often, I fear, it's the therapist's view of what you ought to be doing rather than your view, which was, is at work. But you have submitted yourself to quite a bit of therapy over the years. Yeah, it was psychoanalysis, and it sort of was a long time ago, and that was very different and very Freudian. And very, you know, nobody told you what to do or how to do it, or you just talked ceaselessly. But it was really, it was good. It was, you know, it was when I was quite young and, and was actually quite depressed, I think, I suppose. I don't know. Um, but, but you did learn, you learned a lot if you talk about yourself and nobody interrupts. And because you, you, you learn to form, you learn to distinguish what's going on in your head between thought and feeling, which seems to me to be important, to separate out the, the rational from the emotional, and also to finish your sentences and to convey in speech to, 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 to somebody else uh, the thought processes. And, and they, you know, and you, they're, they're paid so they can't be too bored. And you, you learn to you learn to sort of refine what you're saying till in the end you're entertaining them. <laughs> then you can leave. But I kept, because I so hate, you know, it's a sort of odd thing going to, going to a therapist because you feel you ought to, but going is so miserable and so awful and you scrape over all the scar tissue of the past, which I think is quite unnecessary. I used to get pregnant in order not to have to go. It was the only reason I could think of to say, you know, I'm pregnant, therefore I can't come. But you would only say, what difference does that make? <laughs> it was too late by then. <laughs> So what do you mean, finish your sentences? Well, you have to... But can't, so most outside the room you don't finish your sentences? No, most people don't finish their sentences. If you, I mean, if you tried it in the old days, before we all had computers, we would sort of, you know, you would dictate letters to somebody who was probably more sensible than you were. And if you read what you, if you listened to what you had said, you didn't finish your sentences. Again, in the old days, when you got to, used to get crossed lines, and you would listen into their conversations, which I always did, um, you, you would realize people didn't finish their sentences. It's, and, and, and speech between people is mostly composed of silence, interrupted by sort of exclamations and grunts, and in, or occasionally sort of you know, expressions of desire, or, or whatever it is. Phoebe says that um, as, a, as a writer, she has this uncanny ability to know what other people are thinking. Um, is that, do, do you too? Yes, yes, no, I do. It's very painful. I mean, it, 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 I thought everybody could do it. And then you realize that actually, no, they don't really know what other people are thinking. It got so bad at one stage that they, I could actually hear them. I mean, you heard these voices and you thought you had 
it was voices in your head and you were going mad, but actually, well, they weren't, I mean, they were in your head, but they were actually what other people in the room were thinking. But how do you know that? Well, I don't know. I mean, perhaps I just hear voices. I don't know. I mean, who am I to say? No, because you would look around, you would hear it so clearly. You would look around the, around the table and think, but this is, somebody's just said something terrible. I mean, why is nobody sort of hitting him or leaping to their feet or leaving the table? But nobody did, and then you realise nobody had heard it. But me. how do you know that that's really what they were thinking? Well, it was fairly obvious. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but they were just too polite to say so. I mean, do, do you know, I mean, any dinner table is a mass of kind of unresolved thoughts and unspoken ideas, and, and it's, it's fascinating, but not very restful. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you talked a, a bit about... Um, um, your analysis being very Freudian. And, and I find that you, you refer to Freud all through this book. There are all kinds of Freudian explanations for what has happened to some of the characters. Um, so Freud is... You, uh, well, he's very, un, he's very unfashionable. I mean, I think, I think again, as with, as with Jung, I mean, if you try and cure people, uh, it, it doesn't work. It's, it's not about healing, but there are observations about human nature, and how, with Freud especially, how how the person develops uh, and changes. And it seems to me to make a lot of sense. And it's the same with Jung. His vision of the archetype. I mean, it's endlessly fascinating. If you try and use that to cure people, you first have to work out what it is that's the matter with them. That what is this illness you're talking about? I mean, it, it's it's. It's like this whole thing about the unconscious. We use it as a, as a term to, to, to deal in, but actually there is no place in the head for an unconscious. I mean, there is no unconscious. It is a, it's a kind of concept outside a sort of physicality that we can, we can deal with and communicate with one another. But it's become very, I think it's become very sort of cheapened and easy and, and uh, a way of solving sort of social problems and personal problems that is not necessarily either works or is relevant. What about this idea of the Decameron, the, the literary text that, that inspired the structure of this book? Um, well, it's a terribly old tradition of just the people gathering together, telling their life stories. It's like the Canterbury Tales. I mean, it's a very, you know, it's a fairly obvious, it's a fairly obvious thing to do. Uh, in the original Decameron, they were, they were escaping from the plague. In the original version of this book, which is not the one we've got now, because I did quite a lot of rewriting on it, uh, the whole society was collapsing because the internet had collapsed and, and, the, and this, all, this, all the communication satellites because there were no computers on the ground and some virus had got in. It's all perfectly plausible, but the whole sort of world outside is collapsing as in the original camera and it did with the plague. But here are these people still talking about their own preoccupations, uh, you know, or polishing up their chakras, and, and while actual real necessity and, and desperation is happening outside. But I listen, you know, that's not there to such an extent. It is still a bit. I was looking at, when I was reading this, I was thinking about, I mean, this is a sort of talking cure, but amongst a group of women who've had experiences that all of them can learn from. Um, a, a kind of updated consciousness-raising group without the strangling ideological yes, component. Yes. Well, I think we should. I mean, this is why we read books, to find out what the world is like. And otherwise, you only... once Well, it's not so true now, but once you only had your own experience. But you add to that experience. And, and, and my sort of writing and reading books. Uh, so you have lots of lives here. 
and and bits of these lives will I mean bits from all these lives will apply to lots and lots of people. So you know you take out of it what you want and extra examples of, of what the real world hasn't provided. I mean fiction is very different from reality and it's a sort of focus thing. I mean our own our own lives are chaotic, but you need these 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 shapes put upon them. You crave a shape as a child craves a bedtime story in which good is rewarded and naughty behaviour is punished. Uh, and it's the same thing in, in, in with adult reading, though just much more complicated. You need this shape to be put on experience. So I've got lots of shapes and lots, yeah. of, lots of conclusions and within a bigger conclusion. So, I mean, in a children's story, good goodness is its own reward. In your <laughs> stories, though, you know, goodness can get you into a lot of trouble. And, you know, rotten people can triumph. And nothing's necessarily very fair. In fact, somebody says, I think, um, why do we, um, uh, why, why the child should expect fairness in a world so evidently unfair from the moment of conception, I've never understood. Um, well, well, I think this is true, and one's children always cry, it's not fair, it's not fair. And you always think, well, you know, I never said it was going to be fair. <laughs> you know? um, why, where do you get this concept from? And yet everybody does. I mean, it's very much, it's very much part of some other part of us, which has this, has a sense of natural justice, or has a sense that, that, that sacrifice will in some way be rewarded. And, and perhaps it is, I, you know. We, we, and I have a very short span, and you don't, you know, you don't quite know what happens next. But I mean, I like to think that, the, you know, uh, one has children, and at least I do, and 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 you, you you do your best for them, and sometimes you think, well, it hasn't really worked, has it? But um, <laughs> but and yet you think, well, in the next generation, it probably will. I mean, you don't, you can't tell what the results of your actions are, nor perhaps should you expect to. I, I was, um, you said just then, um, well, that sort of indicated that, that there might be a next life. There might be something afterwards. Well, it would seem a terrible waste if there wasn't, wouldn't it? I mean, you know, I mean, so much experience and carryings on and struggle and trying. It would seem very odd if it was just obliterated, I think. You know, and, and I did, and, and, but my own opinion, my, my own feeling is that, it, it, you know, it's not going to paradise the other end, it's just more of the same in some, <laughs> in some other form. But why should there be more of the same? <laughs> well, I can, well, I had this, this afterlife, this rather peculiar experience, experience, which I know you're going to talk about, so I may, well, it's, it fits now, <laughs> which is... Um, um, I, I kind of suddenly and unexpectedly died. Um, <laughs> fortunately, I was in a hospital. I don't know. It was some allergic reaction I had, and and I did, and I actually died. And they had to bring the crash teams, and it took nine injections and things, and then they brought me back to life. And and but in that time, I had this rather extraordinary experience. I mean, when I was very young, I had the the sort of tunnel experience of the light at the end and the sort of the long corridor and all, which was very con consoling and comforting. And people kind of coming out of these doors who one knew in some way or other. And it was it was a very companionable and rather agreeable experience. This one was not really quite so agreeable, and um, which is why I talk about it, I suppose, because. Um, and in, in, first of all, I, there were the gates of paradise, 
you see, which were a sort of which were which were kind of there and sort of like a mirror surrounded by a gold frame. But it was it wasn't you know in one sort of English middle class way one thought it would be very tasteful. <laughs> but, it, but it sort of wasn't. It was like it was like you know the lighthouse illustrations. Do you know, in that magazine in which everything is, is kind of rather, rather crude colours and rather like Indian temples and it's, it's sort of all orange and phosphorescent and red and, do you know, and, and not sort of beige or stone coloured or pearls <laughs> or anything. Anyway, there were these gates and they were obviously pearly gates and, and, and then they, but they were double glazed as well. <laughs> Like a, like a bathroom, and the, the sort of the opening, sort of the front bit, f sort of went apart, and behind there was this sort of strange grey, misty thing, and there were people this side trying to keep me this side of the gates, but there was terrible creature was sort of coming, trying to drag me through. You see, a like, creature. A creature was rather like Cerberus, with with um, with with long, long sort of limbs, or like those those sort of German expressionist things, pictures of death, you know, which is, is kind of has long, strange limbs and Katie Colville is illustration. It's very like that. And was sort of trying to pull me through. And and um but but actually this side won, which was sort of why I lived to tell the tale. But you could tell it was all trouble through there. I mean I did ask <laughs> I did ask the <laughs> or more trouble. I did I did ask <laughs> I did ask Asked the vicar if he thought it was Cerberus at the gates of hell, <laughs> and he said he hoped not, which was, as, which, which was as far as he would go. But you know, but you know, so I, it's not that I expect to go to heaven. I kind of rather, but but you know, whatever it was, it was not totally doomy. It was difficult, and it was indeed just more of the same. So, and some other version of it. So that's my view of the afterlife. So it's not necessarily rosy. So when you woke up from this and you got better, yes, um, how did it change your, your your view of the way you lived your life? Didn't at all. But you started to go to church. No, I went to church before oh, that. Did you? That's oh. why I talk, asked the vicar if he yeah, thought. Yes. <laughs> no, I was brought. I mean, I was. I wasn't christened. I was brought up by by rational humanist intellectual parents who you know didn't believe in any of that. And uh, but I didn't always like going to church, and and um, and then I and, and my mother sent me for some reason uh, to I went to a convent school for a time when I was very small, and and they said prayers seven times a day, and when, because I was neither christened nor a Catholic, I had to go and stand outside the door seven times a day, you see. <laughs> Uh, with with there were three others in the class who weren't Catholic, so we all went outside. It was much more fun outside the door <laughs> than it was inside. It was like the smokers, you know, the when you just, just you know, <laughs> the company you keep was much, it's sort of much more fun. So we had a good time, and we went outside with your spelling book, and I became a really good speller. So you know, it was not all bad, but nevertheless, there was a slight feeling of being excluded, you know. And so, and, and in later life, I started going, to, I just liked going to church because I liked the hymns and I liked the sense of sort of community and I liked the sense that, you know, it's just one hour a week and you, you know, and you, 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 you pray for the sick and the dying and those around you and 
you know, in, and listen to this extraordinary language and relate back to a past and, and the efforts of the sort of community to get themselves civilized and in order and try and make sense of it. So, and then, you know, and then, but I never went up to communion. But then I thought, well, why am I excluded? I mean, you know, why can't I join? So I joined. There's, there's these little slips in front of you, so I filled it in and thought nobody will ever pick these up. <laughs> but they did, so they called me in. And then, <laughs> and then I, so I became an Anglican. And then I realized what a kind of extraordinary, and you know, when you thought, think, before you join anything, it's like going to any job, it all looks on the surface, it looks fine. Then you discover what a mass of sort of turmoil and dissent it is, you know, in there. But all that's completely fascinating, I think. So, you know, yes, so I go to, and I go to church at 8 o'clock every Sunday morning, and we have to drive about 15 miles to get to the proper readings and the sort of the Old Testament and not, I mean, the, 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 the sort of the language and not the sort of new Bible or the new touchy-feely bongo <laughs> church, <laughs> church sort of group therapy culture, which has become. And, you know, and I just like that. And, and, and we live in the country and the landscape is beautiful and you just watch it early in the morning, sort of changing through the seasons and the whole thing seems to me to be a very good experience, and I, you know, I never sent my children to church. I wish I had. I mean, you know, now, because because it would in some way root them in something, and and well, anyway, that's all. <laughs> so, did, so, did you always believe in God through all these years, or has has God just? I don't know what it means. I mean, I don't know what the word means. I mean, you know, who who do you mean by God? I mean, I mean, do you, what do you mean by believe? I mean, I, you know, I mean, it's like some people believe in abortion. I mean, what do they mean? I mean, do you know? Uh, it's not a faith. It's it. I mean, I, it is seen as a faith. I mean, yeah, but I find it very difficult to believe in the reality or the, or a sort of narrow experience. How can you, it seems to me, you have to believe in something, because otherwise, you look, I mean, they've just discovered this star, which there was a picture of it, which is, is dying and is like a sort of balloon, which is fizzing out. It's sort of tearing around the universe. And it's going at, you know, however, however many billion miles an hour, but we're all apparently traveling at this speed. So, you know, I mean, what's to believe? <laughs> you know, if you're going to believe that we're all traveling, you know, that we're just a little ball of rock traveling at this incredible speed and we're all sort of perched on top of it, it seems no more difficult to believe in God than it is to believe in this. I mean, what are we to, you know, where are our roots? You, you, experiences come to us, you deal with them, you feel, you relate, you work, you earn, you do all this. And, but but it, it's, it's not the only thing that is going on, therefore something else is going on. So yes, in that sense, you know, I'm not like Mr. Dawkins and, and, and you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not literal in, in my beliefs. When you, um, I don't know whether you ever read the books you wrote um, when, you first started, <laughs> when you first started writing them. I mean, read them back or think yeah, yeah, about you them. read them. You, you, go to, you go to events like this and you read them and then you talk about them and that's you find no, out the, about I mean, them. the ones like Down Among the Women or yes. those ones. I mean, do you ever think about um, the kinds of books you wrote and w the effect that they had on people and, and wonder about them and, and think about... Well, like, you see, I, they seem to me really to be historical documents and they related to the time 
in which they were written very much. And now they're read as if the world was still like that, and the world is not still like that. And when I wrote them, uh, women, it was sort of, you know, practically pre-feminist, pre-feminism, and the world was very much organized against women, and men were very much in power, and were not using that power very well. And so the books seemed to were, at the time, legitimate and justifiable and had to be written. Uh, now you read them and you think, you get worried when people read them and think and quote them, quote from them, as if the world was like that now, as if women actually did not now, were not now in a position, I mean not individually or one by one, many are obviously still in a way having a really hard time, but by and large women are in charge of their lives, can choose to marry, not to marry, uh, to have children, not to have children. So in a way, what happens is under their control. Uh, it's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair because women have children or give birth to children. Men don't give birth to children. And so everything is always going to be slightly askew if you're looking for equality. Uh, but it, it's... it's um, Things, things, have, things have just changed, and so what I write now is different from what I wrote then, or at least I hope it is. Um, re reading Auto de Fay, your memoir, um, was, was kind of like reading one of your novels too. I mean, yeah. and, um, and at one point you, you, you talk about Fay in the third person because you, you find it very painful to think about you as, as a much younger woman in a particular time. Yes. And, and you start talking about her as her. And I, and I wondered whether you could talk about that. Well, it probably means I ought to go and see a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> Disassociation. <laughs> Disassociation, yeah. But it's a very large, you know, it's a very large part of one's female life, I think. Or certainly when young, you cannot really believe you did this last night. I mean, really. <laughs> And you tend to forget it or deny it or see it as her. But this sort of idea that you can incorporate all the bits of your, in yourself is, I mean, is asking rather a lot of people. I wrote a novel called Splitting, which was about, I mean, I, I either seem to be writing about, is in cloning, about one woman in four bodies, or in, in Splitting it was four women in one body. And, and it is this, this sort of difficulty that I think we all have in one degree or another. In, in sort of getting them all into one or believing that this person, all these people are you. I mean, and what is you anyway? And, and, and the idea that you can find your true self always seems to me rather pointless. Because you might not like it if you found it, you know. And, and what is your true self anyway? It's lots of things. It's made up of a whole host of reactions of how other people react to you. The gap between how you see yourself and other people see you, which is always very great. Uh, and and where, do you, you know, where do you decide, how do you ever decide where identity is? So it's perhaps a waste of time looking for it. You just better get on with what's in front of you and not necessarily go and polish up your chakras. But they did, these women, and good for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, at one point um, in this book, you actually direct the reader to skip a chapter if um, they're not particularly interested in Gramsci and Freud and Marcuse. Yes. And that is, I've never seen that in a novel before. Well, it seems to me perfectly practical. I mean, <laughs> I mean you know, 
they don't have to be. <laughs> you know, you might as well warn them uh, that, that, you know, this, you might not like this, and, and some people probably won't. So you give the page where you can, you know, you can, you just skip till you get to that. That seems reasonable. <laughs> it's very reasonable. Phoebe says that she sees the end of the world as accidental in contrast to the conspiracy theorist who sees it as a plot, which is comforting because at least it means that someone, somewhere, knows what they're doing. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I know. No, well, this is the thing about conspiracy theories. It's easier, really, to believe that than, than you know, there's somebody out there in charge and it's, not just, it's just not sort of more chaos and accidental. And do you think it's chaos and accidental? I mean, how, can, can you believe in a, a creator and, and, and in chaos and think that, that things are accidental? Well, some days you believe in, you know, some days you believe in God and some days you believe in chaos. I mean, it, you, you know, it's different. It depends. It, like when you get up in the morning, you decide who you are and put on clothes accordingly, you know. <laughs> if you put on other clothes, you think you're a different person. It's, it's you know, and some days, you know, if, you, if, if you've just, you know, you just woke up in the morning thinking about somebody you haven't seen for 10 years and then you go out into the street and you see them. You believe there is a purpose. You believe that all these, these interlocking wheels are going on and, and that's always really rather nice and, and, and comforting. And other days you think about them and you don't see them and you go on believing that it's, <laughs> that it's, um, it, 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 it's all haphazard. But, you, you know, but I mean, I... You know the normal rules don't necessarily apply. I mean, all the time, um, one of my sons with the t bent spoons, the sort of Yuri Geller time, and he would just sort of, I mean, he did, and he would rub these very heavy serving spoons, and it would just bend. He would put it down on the table, and it would go on bending, and you would go and take photographs of it. So, you know, he bent spoons. Well, he bent spoons. Um, pre-adolescent boys, about sort of nine or ten, can uh, do do it sometimes. I mean, there may be a scientific explanation. It may accord with the laws, new laws of, 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 of science that we, we don't understand yet. It may well be the case. But, you, you know, you, you, this happens. I know I've had all kinds of telepathic experiences to do with my family of things that, you know, you sort of see them happening somewhere else and actually they are happening, and I think this is very common in people, uh, that you, you, these odd things happen, you tend to either dismiss them or decide, you know, the measurements, the instruments are wrong that measured it, rather than, rather than accepting that the odd, these odd exceptions to the natural world, the natural law, do occur. But, you know, you've had, one has enough of them to be prepared to uh, not deny them. You know, and in fact, so um, you, 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 so so so, I find Mr. Dawkins an incredibly interesting, <laughs> uh, a reductionist in some way. You, I just feel the world is greater than he is prepared to, and more extraordinary than he is prepared to accept. Though God knows it is extraordinary enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's um, have the house lights up so we can. Um Share, share the question. Yes, right. Hello. Now, um, I'm sorry. I haven't, oh, I haven't realised. I'm sorry. I've been talking totally here, and I haven't realised because <laughs> the lights were so bright that there's all the people over here, and I'm really sorry that I've had my back to you. Well, so I'm going to perhaps take some questions from over here to make up for it. Yes. But you have to wait till you get the microphone. Um, so just this lady with the dark top, and then behind you. 
I wondered when we could look forward to the second volume of your autobiography, a follow-up to Auto de Fe. Well, you, you see, actually, I've done it, but I hid it. <laughs> um, I, the, 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 it, it there's a, a book called Man Trapped, which is sort of part autobiography and part novel, in which I was, in which I more or less did the next section, which was all about a writing life. Uh, um, in which I was trying to work out, I mean, it was sort of rather experimental, and I was trying to work out the relationship between what one wrote and what one did, because, you know, when I was writing it, I had denied, I just thought it was pure invention. But as I was writing the, 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 the autobiography, you realize that actually quite a lot of it had fed in to the novels, but I was just in denial, and I spend a lot of my life in denial of one thing or another, you know, but eventually it sort of dawns. So that was man-trapped. And then there was a later novel called She May Not Leave, in which, uh, in which there, is, there is an older woman who is looking at what is going on in the lives of her grandchildren or children, and that is actually hidden in there, you will find the bit that gets it up to date. <laughs> so in my head I've done it, now I feel I don't really need to do any more. And actually, you know, the first part of people's lives are usually the most interesting, because it's the time when they're sort of, you know, they're discovering who they are, lucky things, and, um, uh, and, and you know, having marriages and emotional lives and traumas and all the rest of it, and then life tends to settle down and you tend, as a person, to get much less interesting the outside world. You never quite lose your interest in yourself, I notice. <laughs> and um, further up behind you, yes. Um. The women in your new book, from the little that you read so beautifully, seem are described by you as high achievers, or describe themselves as high achievers at least, and yet things seem a little bit shaky for them underneath if one has had a prison sentence and the other one can't really cope without her husband for a life, for, for a night rather. Um, I just, I wondered how these high achieving women in your mind relate to your views on feminism now, on the place of women in society now. Um, well, women, I mean, high achieving you may be, but you go on having an emotional life and, and, and feelings and emotions which are other than to do with careers. And you, they, they, I mean, this, they run on, they run, they run along together. Um, I don't, I don't write role models. Um, I, I, uh, so, so that uh, these are not women as they ought to be. They, they tend to be women as I find they are. That they're, you know, they may be you, you'll, you'll be trying to get pregnant even while you're sort of running the company, you know, and going to have IVF or, or you, you know, so I don't quite see, you know, to ask me more, be more specific. I suppose, um, th I don't know really, I suppose it was just the gap between their own self-description or their own perception of themselves if they're answering advert for high achievers. And yet, <laughs> you know, in some ways they don't seem to be high achievers. I mean, Phoebe has this terrible experience that she can't really cope with and, 
you know, she can't cope with a night without her husband. And, I mean, of course, the rest of the book may deny this utterly, yes. and, you know, it is based on a paragraph. Yes, but no, no, it, it is true, yeah. and she does manage, actually, quite well. Good. Um, but, uh, no, no, she does. And, and the trophy wife, again, is somebody who's lived by the pleasure of men and has seen that as her job. But there are other women, I mean, there are a lot of other women who certainly don't, who, who are, are very different. So they're, who quite, are not. they're quite sturdy, and, really. And, oh, oh, no, they are really, I promise you. They can, they can, <laughs> they can you know, they, a lot of them live very well, thank you, without men. I mean, do, do you know? And, and don't look for their satisfaction in a happy marriage or in children. You will be, <laughs> you will be pleased to know. Though I go on believing that a lot, I, you know, I just do go on thinking women are, you know. And no, I'm not even going to say that. <laughs> I don't know. It depends how you wake up in the morning again. <laughs> um, yes, I'm down the front here now. Yep. You say that you didn't take your own children to church. Have any of them in their adult life turned towards sort of spiritual life or religious life? Um, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't think so. But, you know, you never know what's going to happen next. I mean... You know, I mean, some of the children think I'm completely daft. They really don't understand what I'm doing. I mean, my, my <laughs> one of my daughter-in-laws was so horrified to discover I was going to church. She thought I might be indoctrinating her children in unbelief, but I promised her, you know, I promised her I wouldn't try to take them to church secretly against her wishes because I am not, you know, I am not as you, I, you know, I'm not. You know, these things are true, but other things are true as well. And I think, you know, there is not just one thing. There's lots of things, and, but there is what is in front of you. And with me, there's a sort of, you know, a, a drive to church every Sunday morning over 15 miles, 15 miles of Dorset. What, you know, but this is not true to a certain church in a certain place with a certain style which you get used to. And that's true for me, but it's not, you know, it's not, it's not true for them. But I do think as you get older, you, you, the satisfactions of the world get perhaps a little less interesting. I mean, the satisfactions of the career get a little bit interesting. I mean, the problem with, with careers for women is that they're just like careers for men. Uh, men sort of have them and are terrifically interested until they're about 45. And then other people have got more successful, you know, you don't get to the top, somebody else does. Then with men, they very often by that time have wives and families tucked away and then then the interest turns to them and that other life but with women very often uh, they don't they haven't had time they haven't managed society has ranged against them so they don't have this other fallback situation and that's my sort of my worry for women who, who um, that as you get older it, life does get more difficult for you. Right well concentrate on this side now Yes, over there. Just speak into it. Just speak into it. Just speak into it. That's it. <laughs> this belies my question. You don't think then that feminism is uh, over with? You don't think it, we've made it? You think it's a battle continuing? 
I think it's a battle continuing. Of course it is. But you, you know, it's it's not a cause for triumphalism over the over the defeat <laughs> the defeated enemy, which is which is they have to be incorporated into <laughs> the successful work. And it is only it is obviously only been successful in so far as it has uh, here in the West and other countries in the world. You know, could very well do with a whole lot of feminism. And you know, it is. I mean, but I, as a as sort of mother of sons, I find, you know, the, 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 the boys tend to have more difficulty with the world now than the girls do, uh, though mothers of daughters will say it's completely the, op the opposite. Uh, you know, as I say, these things are true, other things are true as well. But of course not. And of course, you, you know, if things revert to very easily, if you're not constantly fairly watchful, and perhaps women are not watchful enough. I mean, most young women now, I think, feel fine there is no reason or cause for feminism. As they get older, you know, they will discover, or they have children, or there's trouble at work, or whatever it is, they will discover, you know, the, they will become aware of, of what has been achieved. An enormous amount was achieved. I mean, people, young women particularly, can have no concept of what life was like for women, that you couldn't get anything on higher purchase without a man's signature. You know, you couldn't get credit without, and that was only sort of 25 years ago. The change has been so vast that it's hard for a young generation to realize that it's needed or, or that it's, there is a continuing need. Uh, yes, we've got someone a hand up here. I just wondered, seeing as how you've just read from your book for the first time today, just how you felt about the publishing process. What's the most frustrating or challenging or satisfying part of the whole deal? Well, this is, this is, this is with the new publisher and has, has been a very satisfactory experience indeed. You know, it's honeymoon time. <laughs> so, three, so three books in, I will tell you. Well, I think the difficulty with publishing now is that publishing is a beleaguered industry. Not enough of you read books. I know it may be difficult to believe this in the Edinburgh Book Festival, but <laughs> uh, you do read books. But there, are, you know, it, 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 there's the internet. There is there is Amazon. The booksellers are having a hard time. The booksellers tend to dictate to the publisher. Uh, what is what they can sell, marketing rules rather than editorial. And this is, has put things into a fairly lamentable situation, I think. Uh, individual publishers buck the trend, but uh, it is difficult. I mean, I now teach creative writing once a week at Brunel, uh, which I love. Uh, but you do worry because, you know, there's so many people wanting to write novels and here you are encouraging them to do this. What does their future hold, you are, you know, except they can go and work in publishing. <laughs> and the most instructive thing for them is to sort of send them to sit in a publisher's office going through the slush pile of all the novels that have been written and nobody is going to publish because that soon gives them a, a glimpse of the kind of level of competitiveness that there is out there. And yet things get through, and yet, you know, if you have a real offering to make, there are readers out there for it, still. Yes, Madam Hume. Thank you. As an authoress, uh, how much time do you get to read, and who do you read? 
I managed to read a lot, actually. I read thrillers, I'm afraid. Um, I, well, actually, I go, I'm living in Dorset, but I go up to London quite a lot, so I read the sort of good books on the way up, and then when I'm tired, I read, you know, like going on holiday, you always read, you know, the, 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 the good bad books, I mean, the thrillers, the, the, un, the less aspirational books which you read first, of which the standard is now incredibly high, I think. Uh, so, yes, no, I, and I read, but because people send me books, I, I read them, really. I very rarely buy a book because I don't have time to get to the bookshop. But I do sometimes buy them. And, um, uh, but mostly, you know, I read lots of women's fiction because it comes through the door for quotes and then people will send me books to, to, to review or publishers will send them to me anyway. Uh, so, and, you know, I read and I read in the bath and I learnt to read very fast not by trying to, but simply from sheer necessity. But what you find is that the books you can read really fast are the books that are not so good, because what you do is read down, you'd realize what you do is read down a word in the middle of the page and everything falls into place around it. So you know what it's going to say, you know, by, by the end. So you can sort of devour the book and read it. As soon as you have difficulty doing that, you start reading with with real attention, because it's not what you expect. Therefore, there are thoughts coming at you which are, are sort of new and strange. And these, are the, these tend to be the good books, actually, that you remember, and you remember who wrote them, <laughs> because you have looked to see, because it is, it is, it's unusual. Well, um, we've come to the end of our session, but Faye's going to be um, signing her books in the tent next door, and if you allow us to leave first, we'll set her up and... Uh, then you can uh, form a line and uh, perhaps if you've got a question, you could ask her then when she's signing your book. Um, but uh, please thank her for being with us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh.